In Viaggio, The Travels of Pope Francis is a new documentary from Academy Award-nominated director Gianfranco Rossi. The film provides a deeply intimate look at Francis's papacy as he travels the world meeting the faithful. In theaters for special screenings on Monday, March 27th. Find more information at inviagiodoc.com. Available to rent and own on digital March 31st. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines on the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Fratelli e sorelle, buonasera. This week, we celebrate Pope Francis' first decade at the helm of the worldwide Catholic Church. We remember with gratitude all he has brought to our church since he first said buonasera from the balcony of St. Peter's on March 13th, 2013. Happy 10th anniversary, Pope Francis, from all of us here at Inside the Vatican. Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega has called for the closure of the Vatican Embassy in capital, Managua, along with Nicaraguan Embassy in Rome. The move signals suspension of diplomatic ties with the Vatican. Daniel Ortega, the president of Nicaragua, has suspended his country's diplomatic relationship with the Vatican. The president, in an extremely rare and stunning diplomatic move this past Sunday, ordered that the Vatican embassy in Nicaragua be immediately shot. He has also ordered Vatican employees to return to Rome and called back Nicaraguan diplomats stationed at the Vatican. Hay algo que hizo en estos 10 años como papa que lo hizo especialmente feliz, que dijo todo aquello que fuera la línea pastoral del perdón y de la comprensión de la gente. Pope Francis gave an interview to Elisabetta Piquet, who is Jerry's wife, and also a Rome-based correspondent for La Nación, a leading daily newspaper in Argentina. In the interview, they discussed the war in Ukraine, gender politics, and the women's right to vote in the upcoming Synod on Synodality. I'm Ricardo de Silva, and this is Inside the Vatican. If you have been looking for a way to grow closer to Jesus' Lent, we have found a great opportunity for you. Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Schirschlecht is a podcast where you learn how to meditate and establish a daily habit of prayer while discovering the truths of the Catholic faith. Daily Rosary Meditations is the fastest growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. Each day, a different topic is explored, allowing you to learn your faith in bite-sized daily portions while you pray the rosary. So join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a rosary, all in under 20 minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app. Just search Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosary.net. Good morning from New York, Jerry. Good afternoon from a cloudy Rome, Ricardo. Well, we had snow yesterday, although none of it stuck, and none today. Well, we seem to be at the beginning of spring, at least that's the impression one has. Oh, wonderful. We've come through a week of real activity here around the Pope's uh, 10th anniversary and his celebration of Mass with the Cardinals on Monday. 
And uh, I could tell you that at that celebration, the Dean of the College of Cardinals, Cardinal Ray, thanked him for these 10 years of service and gave a breakdown of what he had done in the 10 years, at the end of which the Pope said, ah, I'm glad he didn't start talking about my sins and my mistakes. <laughs> well, fortunately, he knows himself to be a loved sinner. Last weekend, in the midst of the celebrations from his own country, a real cross-section of politicians, uh, activists, uh, academics, religious leaders uh, expressed their admiration and thanks to the Pope for what he has done in these 10 years and said they hope he will come to their to visit Argentina, which he hasn't done yet. But from Nicaragua, we got a very different message because they suspended di diplomatic relations with the Holy See, which is quite a serious step in many ways. So over the weekend, we learned that the Nicaraguan government had suspended its relations with the Vatican and that it had ordered its Vatican operations be shut in Nicaragua. The tensions there between the state and the church have run for a long time. And so to help us understand the complex issues at stake, we've invited Kevin Clark, who is a senior editor at America, and he heads up our international reporting efforts here and has reported on the precarious relationship between the church and the state across the world, especially in Central and Latin America. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you for uh, having me in, Ricardo. Can you tell us what the situation in Nicaragua is at present and then the historical situation? Wow. I mean, um, what was it? Karl Marx, who said history uh, repeats itself first as tragedy, then as farce. I think uh, the Ortega administration is doing both. You know, it's, it's simultaneously a tragedy and a farce. Since 2018, civil rights conditions and human rights conditions in uh, Nicaragua have been steadily deteriorating. What we're seeing now is sort of um, the end game of that. There are so few independent voices left uh, within Nicaragua. The press is gone. Thousands of um, non-governmental organizations have been shut down. The independent press is essentially acting um, in exile to cover political developments in Nicaragua. The last man standing was the Catholic Church. And over the past 12 months, the church has been a, a complete target of the um, Ortega government. Along with his, he, he rules along with his, his wife, uh, Vice President Rosario Murillo. So let's just establish for our listeners who President Ortega is. He's in his late 70s. He's a member of the Sandinista Liberation Front. Uh, and he helped overthrow the dictatorship in 1979. Anastasio Somoza, yeah. And then first rose to the presidency in 1985. Voted out in 1990. The uh, uh, Violeta Chamora became president at that time. And then he lost three times and he was re-elected again in 2007. Yeah. And he is now serving four consecutive terms. So in his last election in 2021, I think he got something like 75% of the vote. Uh, it was a good uh, Central American socialist election where pretty much everybody was on board with the, the, the people uh, running. Um, that election was described pretty universally as a farce. Um, I think Joe Biden called it a farce. Neighboring states condemned the election, uh, partly because most of the opposition uh, literally had been thrown in prison. So he was, it was unclear who he was running against. All of his opponents were in jail at the time of the election. Yeah. So, I mean, five opposition leaders were arrested for effectively treason, I suppose, yeah. some sort of national terrorism. And two others who were in contention uh, to 
lead the country were also arrested. So we have, have seven potential candidates all arrested. And among them, former Sandinista comrades of Danny Ortega. It should be noted that his, his um, net has been thrown very wide in, in recent years. Uh, he's throwing old friends under the bus, uh, arresting sort of people you'd expect to be in opposition to the Sandinista um, revolutionary movement, but also former comrades, in fact, one of whom died in prison uh, under, his, uh, under his reign. And the church for some time supported uh, his efforts, right? I mean, his efforts for liberation. Well, I don't know. I think he had allies within the church. Uh, they certainly supported uh, the liberation of people from suffering in, in Nicaragua. But um, there were a couple of prominent uh, priests that involved in his government, the Cardinal brothers. How would you phrase it, Jerry? Well, before the Sandinistas came to power, his church was more aligned with the former so, Somoza, wasn't it? Yeah, that was 1930s to 1970s. Yeah, and then uh, there were uh, when uh, the Sandinistas came to power, the, the, there was a section of the church who were with the Sandinistas, and uh, the Cardin, uh, Ernesto Cardinal Ferdinando Cardinal were members of the government. And you remember when John Paul II visited the country, he was shot down at the mass, and he waved his finger, wagged his finger at uh, Ernesto Cardinal when he went on his knee to ask the Pope's blessing because he didn't like the fact that he was in the government. Yeah. So th there's been tensions from the beginning. But in up to the last election, they were trying to find a modus vivendi, a way of getting along. But immediately after the last elections, uh, the Sandinista Ortega regime tended to really part company with the church. Safe to say the church spoke against the despotic governance of the Somoza regime. And so it supported the Sandinista Liberation Front in that sense. There was a section of the church who was with the Sandinistas. And then uh, the situation changed and the church began to try and find a, a new way of, of being with the new government. But in these recent years, uh, the relations have been deteriorating as the Sandinista regime, Ortega regime, became more dictatorial, basically. In 2018, the church tried to establish a, a national reconciliation dialogue um, after the demonstrations against, against Social Security changes and, and uh, raising taxes really disintegrated into uh, a near uprising uh, that the Sandinista government, I should say, was brutally uh, repressing. Uh, the church sort of volunteered itself to, to create this dialogue. And that seems to be the juncture where they went from being a, what had been, uh, because of his, his social positions uh, and uh, alignment of the church with the with Ortega, he seemed to find them suspect at that point. And we really see this with the social security change in 2018 that angered many Catholics, triggered many protests across the country. And then the government responded pretty heavily, right? Uh, employing security forces, civilian-led militia, um, 355 people at least, we believe, were killed. 2,000 injured. Many of them shot by um, sniper rifle, uh, according to the latest UN report also that was released on March 3rd. Um, so there were professionals taking out protesters from rooftops. 2,000 people were injured. 1,600 people were put in prison. In 2018, the government raided the headquarters of the newspaper, Confidencial, um, led by a journalist, Carlos Fernando Chamorro, who was considered a prominent critic of Ortega as well. So he was trying to shut down the press. And then in 2021, after his latest election- The, Met, the gloves came off in the, in the last year, uh, last two years. A few days ago, he drove out Caritas, which was the last prominent Catholic uh, NGO in the country. And in doing real important uh, development and relief work, humanitarian work, 
Uh, it's not clear who's fulfilling uh, these roles now that he's driven the thousands of NGOs out of the country. So turning to the church now, by August 2022, seven Catholic radio stations or radio stations belonging to the Catholic mm -hmm. Church. They had trouble with their licenses. <laughs> had troubles with their <laughs> yeah. licenses. Yeah. And uh, there was an investigation launched against them. Uh, and the bishop of Matagalpa, Monsignor Rolando Alvarez, was accused of inciting violent actors to, quote, carry out acts of hate against the population yeah. and, quote, of organizing violent groups. And he was placed under house arrest and he's since been sentenced to 26 years and four months in prison. Yeah, I think he was he was actually sentenced under these kind of these new laws that were created about spreading false information or calumny about the government, fake news. Um, he was among the people apparently who were released, uh, 222 political prisoners released to immediate exile in, in the United States. And apparently he refused to get on the plane and said he preferred to stay in Nicaragua. So um, he did not join the, the very large exile group all of whom have been stripped of citizenship, which uh, you know, in this bureaucratic world we live in, how important paperwork is, that's a, a uniquely cruel thing to do to someone, dump them in another country and then say you're no longer, they're essentially stateless now. Bishops and priests have been forced to flee the country as well and even yeah. religious orders. Can yeah. you tell us about that? Missionaries of charity were among the first I mean, if you're driving, if you're ordering the missionaries of charity out of your country, something is wrong, right? But it just it just keeps going on and on and on. They they just closed two other Catholic uh, colleges. I think on March sixth, I think the University of Central America remains open, but it is has been a target for a long time, and it's unclear if if it's going to suffer the same fate as some of these other universities. That's the Jesuit University. That's the today. Jesuit University slowly denuding it of its leadership. Every time someone left in the last few years to go to an academic conference, they were not allowed back into the country. And I think a few of those folks have been stripped of their citizenship as well. Jerry, and in March last year, the papal nuncio in Managua, Monsignor Valdemar Stanislav Somatach, was forced to leave by the government. The Vatican called this an unjustified decision. Since then, Pope Francis has spoken out against the despotic regime there. But it took some time to get there. Yes, the, the Pope uh, was reluctant at first to uh, take the conflict forward. He is a man who believes in dialogue, but it was becoming increasingly clear that dialogue wasn't in the lexicon of the Sandinista government at this point. Yeah, he called it a rude dictatorship led by an unbalanced president. Th th this was last week in an interview. But before that, two two weeks ago, I think, he, he came out uh, in in defense of the Bishop Alvarez, who had been sentenced to prison. Jerry, I have the quote here. He said, it's something from outside of what we are living as if it were a communist dictatorship in 1917 or a Hitlerian one in 1935. Yes, that obviously upset Nicaragua, but it, it, he was lightening it. And then he, he said that, yeah, I think the remark that probably blew Ortega's mind was the fact that he suggested that it was an unbalanced leader now running the country. And th this is quite surprising for the Pope. So so what has happened um, since the Pope made those comments to Infobuy? Well, the Pope made the comments, I think, on Wednesday or Thursday. And on Friday evening, the Vatican received a verbal note saying that the Nicaraguan government was closing its embassy to the Holy See in Rome, and they wanted the Vatican to do the same in Managua. And the local press then on Saturday said that the 
Ortega regime had broken relations with the Holy See. And then the, immediately afterwards, the foreign ministry came out with a statement and said, no, the relations has been suspended. Yeah, I mean, it, they said exactly a suspension of relations between the Re Republic of Nicaragua and the Vatican State has been proposed. They, they were very, you know, they couched their language very carefully. Um, they were responding to local press in the public statement. Well, what they told the Vatican was the relations are suspended. Now, uh, what is the difference between suspension and breaking relations? Suspending the relations means the diplomatic mission, the, the members of the diplomatic mission of the Holy See have to leave Nicaragua. So that's the Vatican embassy, effectively, the nunciature. Yeah, I've learned from the Vatican senior official. The Vatican gave instructions to its charge de faire, who's a uh, um, Senegalese monsignor. The, the nuncio had already been sent out of the country. So the charge de faire had to leave the country, and he was given instruction to uh, take out the archives. But uh, by suspending, the actual building still is the diplomatic mission. It remains the diplomatic mission, and it will have a caretaker. Whereas if you break relations, then the building is no longer protected under the uh, Vienna Convention, and so uh, the government can just walk in and take over. But my understanding is that they haven't broken relations, so technically diplomatic relations still exist between Nicaragua and the Holy See. I've asked a diplomat to explain it to me. So, Kevin, why is this so important? I mean, why is it important for there to be a diplomatic office in a country and there to be diplomatic relations between the Vatican and any state? Well, it's hard to know what's going on in the mind of, of uh, President Ortega, but uh, I, would, I would suspect that he is hopeful that by not breaking completely with the Vatican by suspending as opposed to breaking relations, he does maintain some thread of a potential um, way to communicate. Uh, he's become sort of with, you know, with, a, with an outside uh, force that might help him uh, in the future negotiate himself out of a, a tough corner, he's become, and the Nicaraguan government has become something of a pariah in the region. They're running out of friends. They have very few supporters outside of Venezuela. And, you know, perhaps they're, they'll be looking to join the, the axis of Iran, China, and Russia ere long. That, that does remain a real possibility. But um, he may think that um, the, the Vatican could be a lifeline in, in the future. So he, he doesn't want to completely break. Um, and I think the last time uh, a, a regional power broke with the Vatican was Mexico in, in 1861. And wow. that took 160 years to reestablish formal communications. So uh, maybe he's modeling uh, his concerns on, on the Mexican experience. But Jerry, so that would have been in, you know, in the Latin American region, in Central America. What do we know about nations severing relationships with the Vatican before that or since then? Well, the more recent one was uh, in uh, China in 1951, when China, after Mao came to power, he expelled the uh, apostolic delegate in China, Archbishop Ribéry, and uh, broke relations with the Vatican, and they have not yet been restored. Uh, but I think it's important to understand the Vatican does not break relations. The Vatican, uh, its long history, it does not break relations with states. It's the state who breaks relations with the Vatican. And remember that the uh, majority of the Nicaraguan population is Catholic, and that may have been a big factor in Ortega's decision not to break relations, because at that point, he would have separated himself from 
the Vatican, but also from the first Latin American pope, who has a big, big pull right throughout the whole of Latin America. Jerry, maybe just zooming out a little bit. I, I mean, I think this entire situation in Nicaragua really shows us how important it is for the Vatican to sort of navigate this diplomatic tightrope, right? And very careful about what it says, how it says, when it says. We've seen this in the recent situations in Ukraine. We've seen this in the situations with uh, China-Vatican relations. And the Vatican is constantly criticized for hedging its bets or for not you know, calling out Putin by name, that kind of thing. And yet, here we can see the real-world effects of those relationships being severed. How do you read what the Vatican is trying to do in its diplomacy efforts? The Vatican has very good relations with many of the states in Latin America. And for it to continue, it has to begin to build relations or else the Ortega regime does really go, go into a corner of its own making and may have great difficulty getting out of it. And the church is a big hitter within the country. Whatever Ortega wishes to say or think, more than 70% of the population is Catholic. And his his decision to, to, to clamp down further on the church this week, no Holy Week observances will be allowed, um, no processions, no, they'll all be internal. Um, and in this culture, there was a great deal of processional activities, the Stations of the Cross, for instance. That's all going to be uh, prohibited this year. In a majority Catholic country, yeah, that's huge. And he's, I, I personally think he's taking a risk there. He's obviously alienated the uh, local bishops' conference, to, which is keeping a very low profile, probably because they fear further um, repression and, and want to just remain in a pastoral role in-country. Um, but uh, he's, he could provoke a more a popular uprising based on this uh, suppression of, of Catholic um, religious observances. It seems a reaction from Ortega to the Pope's remark that he took it in a very personal way without uh, calculating what is the overall general consequence in terms of geopolitics in this situation. But uh, Jerry, playing devil's advocate here, you know, the Pope said something very strong against Ortega, which may appear a personal attack, right? In a way that he hasn't said something quite so strong about Putin. Why is there such a difference? The difference is very simple. You have very tiny Catholic population in Russia. In, in Nicaragua, you have more than 70% of the population are Catholic. If he speaks out against Putin, in that kind of way, as he spoke about Ortega, we do not know the consequences that would happen for the small Catholic community. But also the Pope in relation with Russia is trying to find a way to open a dialogue. And up to now, they have been able to facilitate the release of Ukrainian prisoners within Russian captivity and Russian prisoners within Ukrainian captivity. I mean, it may also sound callous of me, but I, I think that there's another difference, right? In Nicaragua, the Pope is really speaking to a very local situation, which doesn't have as broad outreach, international repercussions as the war in Ukraine. And so the, the diplomatic calculus is that much more, right? The big difference is here is an internal conflict confined to the country. With Russia, you are talking about what is a conflict that's now involving 60, 70 countries already and which has the 
great potential to explode into world war, even by accident, as we saw with the shooting down of the U.S. drone by the Russian uh, fighter jets earlier this week. Kevin, you report for us internationally. What do you make of all of this? Oh, I, I find myself coming away just very saddened by this. You know, I'm of the age, where, you know, you drank Nicaraguan coffee to show solidarity, as bad as it was. You drank it to show solidarity with the Sandinistas who, in some respects, in, in circles on the left here in the United States, were viewed heroically, right? Uh, they were throwing out Samosa. They were getting rid of this, this family oligarchy of criminals, right? Kleptocrats that had been repressing the nation for decades. So it's just painful and sad to see sort of the replication of that exact pattern and really with no end in sight to it. Thank you, Kevin. And we'll link to your reporting and the reporting from the Dispatcher's Desk, which is our international reporting section in our show notes. Great. Thank you. Thanks thank for having me today. After the break, Jerry will take us behind the scenes on the Pope's latest televised interview. And we'll share with you our abiding impressions of Pope Francis's first 10 years. If you have been looking for a way to grow closer to Jesus' Lent, we have found a great opportunity for you. Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Schirschlicht is a podcast where you learn how to meditate and establish a daily habit of prayer while discovering the truths of the Catholic faith. Daily Rosary Meditations is the fastest growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. Each day, a different topic is explored, allowing you to learn your faith in bite-sized daily portions while you pray the rosary. So join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a rosary, all in under 20 minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app. Just search Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosary.net. Welcome back. Jerry, you have the rare privilege of having been in the room for two recent news-making interviews with Pope Francis. First, you interviewed him yourself last year, along with some of our America colleagues. And last week, you again watched as your wife took the interviewing reins and questioned the Pope on some tough issues. What was it like to be there again at Santa Marta? Well, it's always an extraordinary privilege to be in the presence of the Pope. And uh, he, I, I must tell our listeners that physically he really has improved just with the walking stick and not with the frame, the walker. And he, he was in great spirit. And uh, she, Elizabeth, my wife, she was like staccato of one question after another very quickly to him. That is very clear. I mean, I watched the interview. She really gets into it. <laughs> yes, but the striking thing with the alacrity and the mm. clarity with which the Pope responded, he, he was really on top form. And you can really see that he's in for the long haul. And the, the, those who, who imagine that he's going to resign in any time in the near future really need to think again. The interview covers a swath of issues, right? I mean, the, the Pope's desire to visit Argentina was a big one. He hasn't been there since 2013, and he says he, he would like to go back, and, and he certainly hopes that that'll happen. And he clearly wants to. I mean, he gave, what, was it four interviews last week to 
Argentinian newspapers. And on Wednesday morning, the 15th of March, he, in, uh, at the end of his public audience, publicly thanked the Argentinian leaders for their letter. He said he was delighted to see that they were able to come together despite their divisions around this thing, and he hoped they will be able to do the same in governing the country. We get the impression that he's perhaps preparing the ground for a visit to Argentina, not this year because there's uh, political elections, but perhaps next year. Well, we certainly hope that'll happen, especially for his sake. Elisabetta said to him, you speak every Sunday and Wednesday about a martyred people. My question is, can we also talk about genocide? And the Pope said, Technically, I would not know how to define it, but certainly when schools are bombed, when hospitals are bombed, when shelters are bombed, the impression is not to occupy a place, but to destroy. What do you make of his response? The question she put, she said, I have seen with my own eyes, because she spent 100 days there and she'd just come back from the Donbass. She said, I've seen that everybody, from women to children, everybody is a target in the country. She said, there are villages no more. There are hospitals no more, schools no more, theaters no more. She said, I have seen mass graves. The impression I get is that the intention is to destroy the culture, the people, the nation. And he says, the impression one is getting is that the intention is to destroy, not to occupy. And he said about the question, is this genocide? Well, that's a technical term. And obviously, the convention, 1948, the convention on genocide is very, very specific. But he, he recalled that for the recognition of the Armenian genocide by the Turks, it took many, many decades for the international community to conclude, yes, that was genocide. And so his response was, Maybe it is genocide. Yeah, he's leaving it open. Yeah, he, he's leaving it open. But he said the impression one is getting is in that direction. And I've spoken to other people in the Vatican since, and they said, well, certainly we could speak about a genocidal war already. So, uh, but obviously this will have shaken Moscow and Putin. And surprisingly, the following days, Moscow has responded, but in a different way. They said, the relations between uh, Russia and the Vatican are better now than than ever before under Francis. And uh, so they, they kind of avoided, they tried to sideline his comment on the genocide and emphasize how good the relations were. Again, I mean, this shows just how difficult and complicated that diplomatic tightrope is, right? And towards the end of the interview, he said, he wants to visit Ukraine, but he doesn't want to do that without visiting Russia as well. He said, I go to both places or neither, and the war pains me. Elisabetta said, he said, she said, this is impossible. And he said, not impossible, but it's not on the cards yet. And then he let open, left open the idea that perhaps he's, I know from inside the Vatican that he's looking for ways to bring together worldly leaders who can map out a path to the end of the conflict. Yeah, they spoke about negotiating peace agreements and mentioned Brazil in that in those efforts. But we'll link to your article about this in the show notes. There's an article specifically on this question. 
Yes, what I was very in, interested in, or I was very moved about, is at the end of the interview, he said to Elisabetta, he said, uh, thank you for your many visits to the uh, Ukraine, and thank you for your courage. Uh, it was very touching that he, he is so alert and so in contact with what is happening. Absolutely. Um, let's turn now to what he said about uh, gender theory. He was asked by Elisabetta whether he is writing a document that there have been some rumors that he might be writing a document about gender theory or an encyclical. And he said he has no plans for another encyclical. Um, but what he did say is that he will make some clarifications. And we don't know when or if they will be forthcoming, but that he has been asked to make clarifications uh, on gender theory. Here's part of his quote. He said, I have always distinguished between what is pastoral ministry to persons who have different sexual orientations and that which is the ideology of gender. These are two different things. The ideology of gender is, at this time, one of the most dangerous ideological colonizations. It goes far beyond the sexual because it dilutes the differences. The richness that is of men and women and of all of humanity is the tension of the differences. It is to grow by means of the tension of the differences. The matter of gender is diluting the differences and making the world the same, all dull, all equal. And that goes against the human vocation. What's the context here, Jerry? Why is the Pope speaking about the ideology of gender? Well, many states have objected to countries, including the United States, which uh, offer to provide aid and uh, various forms of insist assistance, investment, etc., on condition that uh, they buy into a certain understanding on the gender question. And uh, they, many governments are protesting about this, and they have come to the Pope. And indeed, Elisabetta's question was really sourced in uh, the Dutch cardinal, Cardinal Eick from Amsterdam, who came and who said after the preliminary visit of the Dutch bishops to the Vatican that he had gone around to each of the Vatican office asking for a papal encyclical on the gender question. And so, and also, there are many bishops in different countries in Africa, mainly, but also some in Latin America and Asia, who are raising these questions as well with the Pope. So the Pope is reflecting what he's getting back and what he himself feels. He's speaking from the heart. There is male and female, and like he says, you know, you have marriage is between a man and a woman, but he accepts unions between gay people. He accepts unions, but he doesn't want to, he says marriage is confined to this. And so it's a big, big issue. And he, he, he brought out, he said, way back in 1907, the famous convert to Catholicism, Benson, Monsignor Benson, he, he wrote a book called The Lord of the World, in which he foresaw the degeneration of the situation for human beings under a leader under a power that uh, would, in fact, eliminate differences between people and kind of make everything uniform. Jerry, I think there's much more reporting that we need to do on this to understand what Pope Francis is saying and the impact of it. But ending on a less heavy note, we've had a pretty heavy show. We've dealt with some very serious topics, very important topics in the life of the Vatican this year. Pope Francis threw in 
a tremendous surprise talking with Elisabetta about the upcoming synod. In speaking about his history of reforms over the past 10 years, and it was like out of the blue, he said, all participants, whether male or female, will have the right to vote in the upcoming synod. Everyone, everyone. And then he said, that word everyone is key for me. Why is this so significant, Jerry? Well, hitherto, women did not have a vote in the Senate. And since the Senate started, women did not have the vote. Gradually, they became observers. Then they became uh, participants in the discussion groups, etc. But now he, he made very clear that those who are, will be classified as members, participants, not observers, participants in the Senate, whether men or women, will be uh, will have will be given the vote. Now th- this was news. I happened to be next day with one of the people organ helping to organize the synod, and it was news to this uh, prelate. In classic Pope Francis way, right? I mean, he announces it in the press first. <laughs> he, he's a pope of surprises, and this uh, because Elizabeth said, "Well, there basically be just one woman, Sister Natalie, who is the under secretary." And who, by reason of her office, would have a vote? Would she be the only one? And Pope said, no, everyone, Ev- all the participants. This is a big breakthrough. And I, I know this will be uh, very welcome in across the women throughout the world who have been participating greatly. 500,000 participated in the discussions on the Senate in the United States. And many, many of them are women. This has been a papacy of breakthroughs, you know. We, we've seen reforms left, right, and center over 10 years. You've accompanied the Pope for a really long time. Uh, from before he entered the conclave, right? You've written a book about this, uh, the election of Pope Francis, an inside story of the conclave that changed history. And you've been with him on almost every international visit he has made. As we celebrate 10 years on Inside the Vatican of Pope Francis, What's the aspect of Pope Francis that stays with you most strongly after 10 years? Well, since I have known him, and that's much more than 10 years, there's one aspect that has stood out. How long is it? Well, I met him first. I greeted him first when he was made cardinal in 2001. But I've really known him at a very personal level since 2005. Yeah, he baptized your children. So that's all. <laughs> that's 18 years. I know him quite well since then met him many times, been much talking with him. Uh, one thing has stood out, Ricardo. This man is a pastor. He, to my own family, he has been like a spiritual father. Uh, I see as Pope, this, he has continued to be this, but vis-a-vis the world. He sees himself as a pastor. And it's no accident that the New book that has come out in Argentina carries the title of pastor, El Pastor. And that comes from a statement which he himself gave to the authors when he said, when I've seen my life as being that of a priest, as a pastor. And he said, that's what I have tried to do ever since my ordination. And I have seen this at a very personal level, at the level of the family, but I see it also at the level of the leader of the Catholic Church, in relation to Catholics, but in relation also to the people of the world. And it's as a pastor that I read my own kind of abiding take on Pope Francis' papacy, right? The phrase that he uses over and over 
is a culture of encounter. And I, for me at least, looking from you know the pews and in the spiritual direction room, listening to what people are saying about Pope Francis, they are meeting somebody who is able to connect with their reality, who's able to speak to where they're at, who's able to address their joys and sorrows, pain and strife, um, and really be with them. And, and we've seen this especially in the expression of synodality, walking together. People have taken to this so strongly, and it's just the mark for me of his papacy, that he is forcing, forcing is, is a deliberate word here, he is forcing encounters between people because, it, again, it's, it's, a very, it's a very Ignatian thing. Uh, Ignatius says, you look at the world, you're confronted with a reality, and you're shaped and changed by it. And that's essentially what Pope Francis is. He's somebody who is constantly trying to read where people are at, what people are struggling with, what people are talking about, not shutting down conversations, but also not scared to say what he thinks in all of this, right? To have skin in the game, quite literally. Yes, I, I would say when I said pastor, he's the one who accompanies you on the journey of life. Even in this war, he's trying to accompany the Ukrainian people, but also realizing that the Russians too are children of God. And that's where people find difficulty. But he accompanies you. And I, I've seen in term, times of sickness, in times of difficulty, how closely he has accompanied us as a family, but also other people. And in this interview that Elizabeth Beta did, I asked him to pray for somebody. And uh, it's a thing I've done many times. And he says, I'll take this and I put it under the statue of the sleeping St. Joseph that I have in my room. And I will pray. <laughs> Jerry, thank you. Thank you for your candor. I can see you are visibly moved. I'm sure that our listeners can hear um, how moved you are in your voice. Thank you, Ricardo. We look forward to next week. We'll be back next week. Thank you. So much more has happened in Vatican News this week, which we don't have time to discuss at any length. From allegations of clerical sexual abuse cover-up in Poland against Pope John Paul II, to Pope Francis' stern address to Latin American church leaders concerning the implementation of the Vatican's safeguarding protocols, and interviews with two U.S. cardinals on Pope Francis' first 10 years in the chair of Peter. All these and more are linked in our show notes and available on our website, americamagazine.org. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our audio engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Kevin Jackson, Christabel Spielman, and Robert Balliser. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. The show is recorded in the William J. Loschitz Studio at America Media in New York and at the Jesuits International Headquarters in Rome. To keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Media, please follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at RickDSSJ. That's R I C D S S J. And Jerry at Jerry O'Rome. That's G E R R Y O R O M E. We also ask that you consider becoming a digital subscriber to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. It's easy to do and the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Ricardo De Silva. We'll see you next time.